Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with the bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. 
On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Shall we pray as we come to God's word together? Father, we pray that you will speak to us. We thank you that uh, you promise to speak through your word, that uh, you're not silent. But we pray to you that you'll give us hearts that are ready to hear uh, and wills that are ready to obey as we receive your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Slightly dangerous question to ask, but who remembers 1992? If you don't, um, that was when the good old days were just the days. Um, And um, when things that are retro and cool used to just be cool. Um, Now, I bring up uh, 1992 for a very specific reason. Uh, uh, 17-year-old Nick Tucker is desperate Uh, to uh, avoid the sort of growing uh, sensation that God might be calling him to church ministry. Uh, And um, uh, he comes comes up with a brilliant idea. I know, uh, I'll join the Royal Marines. Uh, And um, so I went and saw the uh, the, uh, careers liaison officer at school uh, and was very excited when in the post... Uh, came uh, an invitation to do the potential officers. Sorry, it's very easy for you to say. The potential. 
<laughs> the potential officer's parachuting course. Uh, and I was invited to spend a day on, on an airfield at Dunkerswell in Devon, a former uh, World War II airbase, uh, where the uh, Royal Marines parachute display team live and work, uh, and uh, to join a bunch of other 17-year-olds from around the country uh, to jump out of aeroplanes and learn how to do it safely. Look, I've got a certificate. There it is, if you can't see it, and everything, uh, to prove that it really happened. Now, um, they drilled us pretty hard. They told us um, uh, what to do on leaving the aeroplane. Uh, it turns out that you sort of basically go like that, uh, and then you stay like that until your parachute opens, uh, and then um, when the parachute uh, has opened, um, then you land, uh, and that's all good. Um, Would you like to see what the jump master had to say about my first jump? <laughs> there it is. It's great going through old stuff and finding things, isn't it? And thinking, how can I use this in a sermon? Um, so in, in case you can't read it, um, my first jump on the 6th of August, 1992. Um, jump master's critique. Good aircraft drills and position indoor. On exit, good. Position, but... Legs kicking. <laughs> I spoke with the jump master after the jump, and he said, well, you know, it was fine. Uh, it's just that you were trying to swim. <laughs> and you can imagine it, can't you? This sort of 17-year-old lad finds himself just in space and thinks, what can I do? I'd better save myself. <laughs> and so I tried to swim, but thankfully my parachute emptied, uh, emptied, opened safely, uh, and you can see what the jump master had to say about the landing. Okay. And that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> now, why do I tell you that? Um, is it just because I want you to know that I went parachuting once? Well, not really. I think my utter ineptitude on leaving the aircraft can help us to understand what's going on in Exodus chapter 16. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, then you'll have traveled with Israel uh, on this journey out of Egypt. They've been kept in a land of slavery. Uh, I don't know how to make that go away, but Sean, if you could do that, that would be great. Um, <laughs> they've been kept in a land of, thank you, they've been kept in a land of slavery. They've been oppressed. There's been this kind of constructive genocide uh, against them. They're being beaten, and they cry out to God. And he hears. And he remembers the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remembers the promises he made of uh, taking them to their own land. Uh, and so he sends Moses. Uh, and through Moses leads them out of Egypt through great miraculous signs. He, he, he demonstrates his complete power. So that every single god of Egypt is sort of um, symbolically defeated in plagues that God sends uh, on the land. So that the ninth plague is the plague of darkness, where even the greatest of the Egyptian gods, the sun god Ra, is just extinguished for a day to show the power of the one true living God. 
and in the events of the Exodus itself, he shows his utter commitment to them and and his extraordinary power to provide for them. Every firstborn son in Egypt dies, but God makes provision uh, to protect the firstborn of Israel. He leads them through a sea, uh, literally walking on dry ground with the sea piled up either side of them. Uh, And when the Egyptian army, the best fighting force in the world, in fact, the best fighting force the world had ever seen at that time because of technological innovation and because of their chariots, the sea just closes over them. And the, the greatest military the world had ever seen is just wiped out in a moment as God protects his people. We join them in chapter 16, page 73, chapter 16, uh, verse 1. We join them exactly one month later to the day. They came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. They left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. It's exactly one lunar month later. And what happens? Verse 2. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, Moses and Aaron make it very clear as they go on that the people are not grumbling against them, but against God. It is, after all, uh, God who brought them out. So the first time you'll see that is at the end of verse 8. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. God has brought them out of of Egypt, uh, and the people decide that actually he hasn't, he can't save them. They've carried out bread and kneading troughs, uh, and it's run out, and now they're hungry. And so they say, it would have been better if we'd died in Egypt. Like, I might say that the good old days were 1992. These folks are saying the good old days were a month ago. Do you remember? Remember Pharaoh? Those were the good days, weren't they? Do you remember the oppression, the violence, the slavery, the genocide? Oh. Do you remember? He put on a good spread, didn't he? <laughs> That's basically all they've got. They're saying, look, at least back in, Israel, at least back in uh, Egypt, we had food. As the King James Version puts it brilliantly, it says here, they, 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 we sat around pots of meat. Uh, we, we sat around the flesh pots of Egypt, it is in the King James. It's a sort of very kind of uh, s- striking phrase, isn't it? But they basically say, look, at least there was stew in Egypt. But here we are in the desert and we're hungry. Now, you don't, you're not always at your best when you're hungry, are you? My sister, I, I don't think it was pointed, but for a few years ago, for my birthday, she bought me a T-shirt that said, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry. I don't know if that was an apology to me or offering one that I could make on my own behalf. I suppose I was one wearing the T-shirt, so I guess we know the answer to that. But the people are hungry and they're tired and they've left Egypt a month ago and already it's long enough ago that they can forget just how awful it was and how desperate they were to be rescued from it. And, and they basically say, God, why didn't you kill us there? 
rather than bring us out here to starve. And God's response is very instructive. It tells us the two things that we need to know this morning. Here's the first. I will rain down brain from heaven for you. The people to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Literally, it is, and see whether they will walk in my laws. It's a test of loyalty. That God is going to feed his people, but in a way over which they have no control at all. He will give them bread every morning. Day after day after day. We read at the end of the chapter, he does the same thing for 40 years as they wander in the wilderness before they come into the promised land. So God has a purpose in them being in the desert. He has a purpose in them being hungry. If you turn to the, to the map at the front of the Bible, you'll see that the root of the Exodus, it's the first map on the top left, uh, the root of the Exodus takes them down south along uh, the uh, western uh, board of the uh, Red Sea. They're heading down into the Sinai Desert. That's the stage of their journey that we're reading about now. And God is taking them on a very sort of roundabout journey to get them to Canaan. And it's not a mistake and it's not an accident. He's got them in a place where they cannot provide for themselves. And he's saying, I want you to learn about yourself. I'm going to test you. I'm actually going to show you what's going on inside you so that you'll really know your need of the Lord. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that the way that God provides for the people, given that they're sort of grumbling and going, oh, you're so... He provides them with food that massively exceeds their needs, not in terms of its quantity, but in terms of its quality. And it points forward to what is coming. So look at verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. If you've ever wondered why they call it manna, it's because they've got no idea what it is. And manna sounds a bit in Hebrew like, what is it? So that's why they call it that. Uh, The people called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Now, um, before the refining of sugar took off, um, and what a blessing that's been to humanity, uh, the only way to really sweeten food uh, was either to use um, sort of mashed up fruit uh, or honey. Honey was the the sort of purest source of sugar uh, that was available. It was an enormous luxury. You had to find it wild. There wasn't cultivated honey in the way that there is uh, today. Uh, And it was an enormous treat. Uh, And this manna, this bread, tastes like wafers made with honey. It's like a king's delicacy. And there's something else about it too. I don't know whether you noticed. Why do you think we're told that it's white like coriander seed? It's got nothing to do with coriander seed, by the way, other than that coriander seed is white. When God promises to take his people into this new land, what does he say about it? I'll take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. So what do the wafers look like? They're white. 
They look like milk, and they taste like honey. It's like a kind of taste of what's coming. It's like a sort of, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm leading you there. It's a blessing greater than they need. This is the choicest food in one sense. Well, they won't stop them grumbling about it as time goes on. But it's also a picture of the blessing that is yet to come. An image of the promise that God has made to his people. So let's think about the test. What do we see? In t- what does this test produce? Where God says, I'm going to test my people by providing for them. That's a slightly strange idea, isn't it? But he's going to test them by providing for them only what they need day by day. So the thing about the manna is you're not to keep it overnight and try and store it up for tomorrow. You're not to build sort of pantries in your tent where you have the sort of manna store. That's what God says. I'll give you new every day. Uh, and so what, what do some of the people do? Well, they immediately gather as much as they can and sort of store it under the, I was going to say under the floorboards, but tents don't generally have floorboards, but you get the, you get the point. They try and sort of stockpile it so that then as Moses comes walking through the camp the next morning, he knows there's something wrong because it absolutely stinks. It's filled with maggots. It's rotten. It's disgusting. So the people think, well, it's... There's manna here today, but there may not be tomorrow. And so they try to take extra. And the result is just stink and putrefaction and it's disgusting. But then God also says, right, you know, I made the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And you're to rest on the seventh day too. So I'll provide you uh, with uh, double the amount Friday night. Uh, you'll have uh, double the amount you need, or Friday morning rather, you'll have double the amount you need, so on the Sabbath day, uh, you can rest. You can worship me, you can rest, you don't need to go out looking for food. Uh, and on the Friday, there's twice as much as, uh, as they need, and they all gather it up, and the elders come, and they say, say to Moses, look, this is what's happened. And yet, what do we read? Some people go off on the Sabbath day, and they start looking. And again, God is angry and says to Moses, will you ever listen? What's going on? Now, I guess the point's obvious, isn't it? The people really don't trust God. They just don't. So that they're led out of Egypt and they're starting to get hungry. And as soon as they start to feel a bit empty, they say, well, he should have killed us in Egypt, shouldn't he? He doesn't love us. He's not going to provide for us forgetting everything they've seen. God says, I'm going to give you bread in the morning. It's going to just be there. You can go out and collect it. I'll do it every day. First day, bread's there. God's kept his word. Brilliant. Well, we can't trust him to do it again tomorrow, can we? (laughs) And the same with the Sabbath. And on and on and on. Here's the thing. What this test shows us is what our hearts are really like. We're no different from them. On on the one hand, you can look at it and you can say, this is ridiculous behavior. And it is. It doesn't make any sense. But they almost can't help themselves. Because deep down, they've believed this lie that they love themselves in a way that God never will. That they can provide for themselves and look after themselves in a way that God never will. That they can be trusted to look out for their best interests, but they cannot trust God. 
That's, I think, the point. Uh, and that is why we're told some little details in the passage, like, um, you know, meat in the evening, bread in the morning, and we get evening followed by morning several times in this passage. Uh, it's pointing us back to Genesis chapter one, where that's the, the pattern of creation. There's evening and then there's morning on the first day. And so it goes on. There's the obvious uh, pointing back to the Sabbath of Genesis 1 and 2. And then there's the obvious pointing back to the test of Genesis 2.17. This tree that is put there in the garden that is pleasing to the eye and good for food, but from which you are not to eat, and on the day you eat of it you will die. It is around food that God's people are tested. And in Genesis chapter three, humanity brings death and destruction and corruption into the world by refusing to believe that God's word is true and that God is good and loves his people. So they believe the lies of the serpent. He says to them, well, of course, the big problem is that God doesn't really want good things for you. So he's only withholding this because it's good. And because if you have it, you'll be like him. So deep down at the very beginning of what went wrong with the human race is this lie that God doesn't love you. He won't bless you. You can't trust him. His word isn't true. And so even in the face of all the evidence that God does love them, that God does have power, that God can be trusted, that God will bless them, at every point confronted with that evidence, the people immediately respond by acting as though that, that's not true. God can't be trusted. God won't look after me. God doesn't love me. That, my friends, is the heart of sin. Uh, the, you know, one of the, the sort of most uh, highly regarded philosophers of the 20th century was Bertrand Russell. And um, he was a, a very outspoken atheist. And he was asked, um, what, what, what happens, Bertrand, if when you die, it turns out that God's real? And he says to you, why didn't you believe in me? Bertrand Russell replied, well, it's very easy. I will say there was not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. And I think we like to believe that we are rational beings, that we just do what is rational, what's logical. But I find it very hard to read the Bible and think that that is the picture of humanity that we're presented with. We frequently act in ways that are utterly illogical, that don't make any sense in terms of the available information. And actually that's, that's true of us if we know ourselves well, isn't it? We make decisions that from the outside don't make any sense at all. We're governed by instinct. We're governed in many ways by feeling, by what's going on inside here. And it's striking to me that the most that the sort of most glaring examples of unfaithfulness, of faithlessness, of unbelief in the Bible come from those who have the most evidence on which to base belief. So these people have just walked through the Red Sea. They've just seen all the 
calamities that have come on Egypt. There is, and even in this story, even in chapter 16, as Aaron is talking to them, the people all turn around because there's something going on in the pillar of uh, fire that shows that the glory of God has appeared. So here they are, kind of like in the shadow of the glory of God, and yet they're faithless. Jesus is walking around uh, in the promised land uh, in the first century. God himself has come to his people, uh, and he performs extraordinary miracles, undeniable miracles. Uh, Sometimes uh, the people who are out to get him try to get him on the basis that he's done this miracle, but he's done it on the wrong day, the Sabbath, as it turns out. confronted with irrefutable, undeniable evidence of God's existence and his power and his work, what do those people do? They say there's only one thing we can do with this person who's demonstrated this sort of power. We have got to string him up. And they kill him. at least in terms of the Christian view of the world, lack of faith is not primarily because of a lack of evidence. You would not find it any easier to believe if you'd lived with Moses or with Jesus or whatever. Lack of evidence isn't the problem. Actually, the problem's in here. In my heart, I keep turning away from God. I don't trust him. That's what sin is. I don't trust him to be God. And I feel like I need to take over. Just like on leaving the airplane, all of a sudden I lost all faith in parachutes and decided that air swimming was definitely the way to a safe landing. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You look at that from the outside and you think, what good does he think the breaststroke is going to do him at 1,500 feet? Precious little. But that's what all the extra foraging on the Sabbath in Exodus 16, uh, that's what all the trying to keep a bit of manna over for tomorrow, that's what all that is. It's an attempt to save yourself when there's nothing you can do. You're in the desert. Either God looks after you or you die. Those are the two options. And still they think, well, let's not trust God. We better trust ourselves. That's what faithlessness looks like like a ridiculous 17-year-old boy trying to swim his way through the atmosphere to safety. That's the first thing, is recognizing that what this test shows us is that we're not as rational or as thoughtful or as sensible as we like to think. We walk away from the Lord because of what's in here, not what's in here, not what's out there. Second thing, much more briefly, is that in the face of all this, God is unimaginably generous. He just gives. And in his giving, he demonstrates that he is a God who can be trusted. He spends 40 years teaching Israel that they can trust him. 40 years of bread there every morning. It is supposed to teach us Something not just about ourselves, but something about the God who is there. He is trustworthy. He is generous. He is good.
Now, if you're taking notes, I'm going to point you somewhere that we don't have time to go, but um, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9, why don't you have a look at that? See how uh, God's provision of daily bread gets picked up in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it comes up in various different ways. You think about the prayer that Jesus teaches his people. What's the first petition? What's the first thing that we ask for? Give us today our daily bread. It's a reference back to Exodus 16, to the bread that God gives every day, to the fact that God provides each day, that we cannot provide for ourselves. Prayer is a way of acknowledging that we need God. It's an interesting question to ask ourselves as a church family and as individuals. If prayer isn't right at the heart of my vision for the life, our life as a church together, if prayer is not right at, my, at the heart of my vision of my own life, what does that say about who I really trust? Do I trust God? Or do I trust what I can do, my time, my energy, my money? Are those the things that are really going to build and grow a church and make it healthy? Or is it something that can only happen through the power of God and through prayer? In John chapter 6, Jesus picks up uh, Exodus 16 as well. So he feeds 5,000 people out in the wilderness. Uh, and the people think, oh, hang on. We've done, we've done this before. So they come to him and they say, give us more bread. Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And Jesus teaches them the same lesson that Moses taught them. Look, it's not about Moses, it's about God. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Jesus teaches us that in the end, God's ultimate provision, that we couldn't, we couldn't look after ourselves, we couldn't provide for ourselves, we cannot make it ourselves. He has sent Jesus. And in the end, the biggest question that any of us will ever face is this, do you trust Jesus? Do you really trust him? in the way that a person trusts a parachute. Because the thing about a parachute is you've really got to trust it, haven't you? And if you're in an airplane and it's losing power and it's gonna fall out of the sky, you have a decision to make. Do I feel safe on the plane? You know, it's solid, I can touch it. I know that it's flown before. Or do I trust this thing that's strapped to my back that once I go and pull the ripcord, that's it, I'm a passenger, there's nothing I can do. The Christian faith is about trusting that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, when God says, here is my son, Put your trust in him and all will be well. Ultimately, the question is, do you trust him? I really do think that's what Exodus 16 is pointing to us and asking us. Do you trust him?
And if not, why not? The answer to that question may not be as rational as you think it is.